Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. I'm talking with Dr. Philip Drew and Dr. Bruce Oswald. So we've talked so much about the consequences of what happened in Rwanda um, in like you've just mentioned, uh, legal lessons that you took away. Um, Dr. Drew, wondering if you can take a couple step backs um, and talk about the lead up uh, to the genocide. You draw parallels between the Rwandan genocide and the Holocaust, noting that genocides just don't happen, but are in fact planned out by certain ethnic, racial, or religious groups. Can you talk about the similarities between those two genocides and how do you identify that a genocide is happening or is going to happen? Uh, Identifying that a genocide is happening, I think is the easy part. Uh, Because if you take a look at what the definition of of genocide is in uh, the International uh, Criminal Court uh, statute, for example, it tells us that a genocide is um, a planned activity in which, uh, or or that is designed to destroy a segment of the population. And we can see a genocide when it happens. Uh, We can recognize a genocide when it happens. For example, the genocide against the Rohingya, um, the genocide against the Tutsi, the genocide against the Jews, the genocide against the Armenians. These were acts that were designed to destroy a segment of the population. And the thing being is often we see these uh, only when they're occurring. And the reason we see them only when they're occurring is is, uh, on many cases, we don't see them as they are developing. And when I I came back from Rwanda, um, I'm, I'm going to step back a little bit in history because I was the son of a military uh, family in Germany when I was a young boy, and I was very fortunate to have parents who uh, did not uh, merely sit around the Canadian Armed Forces base on the weekends, but took us out everywhere that you could think of. And um, I can remember vividly uh, when I was eight years old visiting the concentration camp in Dachau, just outside of Munich, and I was horrified. Uh, as an eight-year-old, uh, I knew that there was evil there. And uh, after that, I started to really start reading about um, genocide and the activities surrounding the Holocaust. And, you know, I must say, this was the 1970s. We did not have television in Germany. So when we were kids, um, in the evenings, the long winter evenings in Germany, we read. And um, I started reading about genocide, etc. So when I showed up in Rwanda and uh, landed in that incredibly horrific situation uh, that we arrived in, I looked around and I said, how can this happen? Like in, at the end of the Second World War, we said, this will never happen again. We gave it a name. We called it genocide. Raphael Lemkin gave it that name, I should say. Not we. He gave it the name. We accepted the name eventually. So, while I was there and after I came back, I started to think about um, genocide, and I was doing more reading, and I had read about the uh, 
the civil war in Bangladesh and uh, the awful things that happened during that. And uh, the author, uh, I believe it was Michael Payne at the time, writing in 1973, had set out these indicators that this was coming. And he he started my uh, interest in comparative genocide and how we can prevent a genocide from occurring. Because I took what he wrote and I started comparing it to what uh, I had learned about the genocide and the development of genocide in Germany. And uh, this has been expanded upon uh, significantly by some very significant work by Dr. Gregory Stanton, um, who came up with originally the eight stages of genocide uh, uh, and then the 10. And, and what that does is it sets out a framework uh, that talks to us about how society changes in order to permit a genocide to occur. Because uh, as I noted in my article on uh, the comparative article between Rwanda and the Holocaust, these genocides take a lot of work to actually uh, create and make happen. And and what uh, is required in the case of a genocide is for a government or or another organization to create in its population a sense of divisiveness within the uh, state and a an attitude amongst people that they really don't uh, first they don't care about their fellow uh, person who is different from them and when I say different from them I mean part of the target group and then to move from not really caring to actively hunting them down and or participating in uh, their demise or at the very best, just being willfully blind to what's going on around them. So as, uh, as Dr. Stanton set out, uh, there are things that we... Uh, that we do in societies that move us toward the acceptance of genocide occurring. And uh, one of the first things we do is we classify people and we call them something. It could be that we're calling them Jews. It could be that we're calling them gypsies. We could be calling them uh, Tutsis. Uh, we could be calling them socialists. We could be calling them fascists. Um, however, socialists and fascists, those are political groups. Uh, so we need to be careful with our definition of genocide here. But what we're generally looking at is a racial character, uh, characteristic that sets one uh, group of people against another. Usually, um, it's the majority population against a smaller uh, population that looks or acts differently than they do. Um, So part and parcel of that is the development of a concept of discrimination against people. You know, you are foreign. uh, You don't belong here. You came from somewhere else. Um, And, you know, the the Nazis always depicted uh, Jews as having uh, invaded Europe 
from the Middle East. And uh, part of that invasion is also a dehumanization of them. So uh, the, the Rwandans similarly depicted, or the Hutus in Rwanda similarly depicted the Tutsi as coming from somewhere else. And they depicted them as coming from a, uh, Ethiopia area and invading um, Rwanda. And part of, as I said, part of uh, this uh, foreign theory or this foreigner theory is that they begin to depict these people as different and then they dehumanize. And in the case of uh, the Nazis, they often uh, symbolized uh, Jewish people as rats or as spiders or some type of insect or pest. In the case of Rwanda, the Hutu government uh, and the propaganda machine that it uh, controlled characterized the Tutsi as cockroaches. Inyenzi is the name. And when we look at that, you say, okay, so they're calling people names. But when you characterize somebody as a pest or as a rodent, especially one that is uh, depicted as carrying disease or being dangerous, uh, that dehumanization actually makes it easier in the minds of the people to engage in activities designed to eliminate that group of people. So for example, if, if you told me that I should go and kill a person, I'm probably going to go, uh, no, I don't think so. But if you tell me to go and kill a rat, or you tell me to kill a cockroach, or you tell me to kill a spider, uh, the chances are I'll probably say yes, if they're uh, any type of threat to me or my health. And that is the type of discrimination, the type of classification, and the type of um, mentality that we're trying to develop. Like, you are, you are foreign, you are not like us, and it's time to get rid of you. So these are the types of uh, things that we see going on. Then you organize, and one of the big um, factors in most genocides is the requirement for people to carry identification papers. And in uh, Nazi Germany, for example, everybody had to have their, uh, their papers that they had to show. And uh, Jewish people had a big J, for example, on, uh, on their papers to show that they were Jewish. In uh, Rwanda, and I, you know, I have some of these Rwandan identity papers um, that I was able to retrieve from various massacre sites, um, Inevitably, the uh, the Rwandan papers there was there were three character or three categories of race in Rwanda. One was Tutsi, one was Hutu, and one was Twa. And the Twa were um, a very small minority of the people. But in the massacre sites, uh, the papers the were always uh, identified as Tutsi, and. You know, it's it makes it very easy when you when you require somebody to carry papers uh, to identify them. You know, they may not be identifiable otherwise. You take uh, Jewish people, and you know, uh, 
who, who can tell a Jewish person from any other person? Who can tell um, a Tutsi from a Hutu? I can't most of the time. But if they've got a piece of paper in their pocket that says I'm Jewish or I'm Tutsi, then if I'm uh, one of those who is inclined toward engaging in genocidal activity, I have my identifier that I need, and uh, then I'm then I need merely to set to work and eliminate uh, that rodent or that pest. Um, so there's so many of these steps that we missed in Rwanda. There are so many of these steps that are occurring in our everyday societies. And I'm not saying that we're necessarily going to turn genocidal, but the lack of respect for uh, people and the creation of the us and them uh, categories in our Western societies is to me uh, incredibly disturbing. And so we've talked about places in the world where unfortunately this is still happening. Um, you mentioned the uh, Rohingyas in Myanmar. Uh, I'm also thinking of places where maybe those steps toward genocide are happening or maybe it's it's already gone far enough. Uh, thinking of the Uyghurs in China, for example, are there parts of the world where you see those ingredients that you mentioned uh, sort of brewing and perhaps there is a genocide on the horizon? And if so, what are either the legal actions that could be taken um, or diplomatic actions that could be taken uh, to put a stop to that? Genocide exists wherever we have society that is divided and a society in which people are characterized by their race, their religion, their creed. And in many societies, some of these steps have already been taken. When you call a group of people all race, all rapists or something along that lines, those are steps that are very, very um, disconcerting. How can we stop it? I don't think that we necessarily stop it through legal measures because quite often uh, legal measures don't encompass the tools that we need in order to stop it. We have human rights tribunals and human rights tribunals are always acting after the fact. But we do have in our societies the ability, at least in most of our societies, the ability to speak out and to not tolerate governments and other organizations that engage in racist or discriminatory activity. We also have the ability as, as individuals to call out governments and to call out our leaders when they are engaging in activity that creates uh, divisiveness in our societies. On the international level, it's often difficult, unless you have uh, people inside a country, to understand uh, what is going on. And you know, this is a problem that we have uh, as well in the West. And I'm, I'm going to go back to Rwanda in this case in 1994. If you turn on uh, most television news channels these days, you will see a bunch of talking heads who are yelling at each other about something that is probably a minor issue and that has occurred within a country. We very rarely see 
really good reporting and real in-depth analysis as to what's going on in the world, with the exception of perhaps uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation and PBS. We don't get a lot of good journalism anymore. And this came to light for me in Rwanda as we were getting ready to go in, because I was the Canadian intelligence officer. I'm the guy who should know what's going on in the country. And in the case of Rwanda, most of the journalists, in fact, by the time I got there, all of them had left the country. There were no journalists when I arrived. And uh, with the exception of one BBC journalist, there had been very, very few people who stuck around uh, through most of the genocide. But the telling part is that as I was trying to get ready to go to Rwanda, I was desperately looking for anything, any bite, any type of information that I could get my hands on as to what was going on. This was at the time that O.J. Simpson had just killed his wife. And when I was turning on the news, all I could get was hours and hours of coverage of this person called O.J. Simpson and the fact that he was accused of having murdered his wife and her lover. And the Western news was absolutely engaged in that activity. And meanwhile, there are hundreds of thousands of people being slaughtered in Rwanda, and there's not a sound bite out of there. And this is what happens when our journalists, or when our journalism becomes entertainment, rather than journalism. And since that time, it has gotten worse. When I turn on most uh, television stations today, I see nothing of what's going on in the world. I see nothing of what's going on in Syria today. I see nothing of what's going on with the Rohingya. I see nothing of what's going on with the Uyghurs in China. I see absolutely nothing about uh, any activity that's occurring against minorities anywhere in the world. And it's happening every day under our nose, but nobody's telling us about it. Why? Because it doesn't do well in the ratings and it doesn't sell books. So it's up to us to demand better. We must demand better out of our governments. We must demand better out of our organizations that are supposed to be providing us with news. Again, um, two white guys sitting across the table yelling at each other about whether something is socialist or fascist um, isn't news. It's entertainment. And uh, unfortunately, entertainment sells, news doesn't. And we are in a situation right now where in the world generally, we don't know what's going on. We, we don't know what's going on next door. So... Uh, let alone around the world. So, you know, we're sort of stuck in that situation right now. And I hope desperately that we can get out of it. Um, but uh, it's going to take a little bit of effort and a little bit of um, navel gazing in order for us to understand that we are generally ignorant uh, of what's going on in the world. And, if, and we don't even see stuff that's happening inside our own communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Drew and Dr. Oswald, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us uh, about this very important period in history. And hopefully we 
can take a look back and take a look around now and uh, learn some lessons from it. Uh, Dr. Philip Drew and Dr. Bruce Oswald, uh, they are the authors of Rwanda Revisited, Genocide, Civil War, and the Transformation of International Law. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Lee. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. 